0: Connecticut and Massachusetts, Z&M Homes buys houses. Sell your property to the local guys. Needs repairs, updates, maybe foreclosure or inherited? No problem. We got ya. Google or add us on Facebook at Z-A-N-D-M Homes.com. What is it? What is it? It's Baxi's musical podcast. In most cases, every category of music that has ever existed has eventually broken down into subcategories. It's a way of classifying everything so that everybody understands that whatever you're listening to is different from what you think you're listening to. Different ideas come from different people and tend to lead folks down into new territory. Jazz, for example. You got cool jazz, acid jazz, Dixieland, electro swing, free jazz, indo jazz, bebop swing, and about... 35,000 other subcategories, all vaguely falling under the larger jazz universe. It's still technically jazz, but it's really more of its own thing. Same with rock, country, classical, hip-hop, you name it, somebody along the way has tried to fiddle with it. For the purposes of today's episode, reggae has been no different. You have Mento, Ska, Rocksteady, Roots Reggae, Dancehall, Ragamuffin, Rockers, and Reggae Fusion. And then you also have the curious subgenre of dub. Dub was an electric subgenre of reggae that came out in the 60s and 70s, in which previously recorded material was remixed to include additional rhythms, instrumentations, and vocals. Some of the earlier pioneers of dub included the late Lee Scratch Perry, Errol Thompson, and Big Tubby Ruddock. And ever since, dub has been extremely popular, not just in Jamaica, but also in the UK where disc jockeys used to mix dub music just to fill in the gaps between punk singles in the mid-1970s. Recently, though, dub has been taken to a new level by the New York-based Easy Star Records. This is a record company that is primarily a producer of reggae albums, but also heavily dabbles in dub as well. In fact, the label not only posts a tremendous roster, Of artists, The label's founders have spent the last several decades releasing their own dub interpretations of some bonafide classic albums, including Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, Michael Jackson's Thriller, OK Computer from Radiohead, and Sgt. Pepper from The Beatles. The end result are records that take on a totally new tone, but in a totally earnest way. Their latest effort is an exceptional dub treatment of David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust, called Ziggy Stardub and the Spiders from Mars. With there being so much additional attention being put on to David Bowie this year, this episode couldn't have come at a better time. And the album is loaded with some exceptional guests like Steel Pulse, Macy Gray, Fishbone, Maxi Priest, Alex Lifeson of Rush, and many more. Easy Star Records is one of, if not the most successful, U.S.-based reggae record labels in the world. And Michael Goldwasser is the founder of Easy Star Records. He's not only the owner, he's a songwriter, a producer, And he's the driving force behind the label's house band, the Easy Star All-Stars. This is my interview with Michael Goldwasser from Easy Star Records on Baxi's musical podcast. Hey, Michael, how are you? I'm okay. Good to see you. I I can hear you. I can see you doing fine. Okay, great. Good to have you. Yeah, thanks
1: for having me. I, I have no idea really what we're going to talk about, so um, you know, it's always the best kind of interview. Well, In my, yeah.
0: well there you go. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I won't throw too many too many hard balls or unexpected uh, unexpected oh, no, questions. It's all good. The uh, the timing on this for me could not be uh, more perfect. The David Bowie World Fan Convention just wrapped up a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And I've been on this uh, pretty intense deep dive on David Bowie-related <laughs> 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 interviews so, like I said, the timing could not be wow. more perfect. Into the into the Ziggy Star uh, record, I did want to ask you a couple of questions about Easy Star Records because I think it's you know, it's really interesting. It's a label that you started with a couple of friends back, I think like 27 years ago. None of you really had a whole lot of experience in in running a record company or an independent label. Tell me how that all started.
1: Sure. Well, first of all, none of us had any experience <laughs> running a record <laughs> label. <laughs> But I, I was the at least I was a musician and a fledgling producer, so so I understood that that side of things. But how did it all start? Was that I've been a reggae fan for a really long time since I was let's say a young teenager, and I became friends with two people who be, would go on to become my partners, uh, Ramey Gerstein and Eric Smith, in high school, and then when when I was more of college age, I became friends with Lem Oppenheimer, who's the fourth partner. And we all started hanging out a lot together, often in my apartment in Manhattan. And we just would listen to a lot of reggae and, and at that point we weren't thinking, let's start a record company. (laughs) But as we, you know, we were going to reggae shows and, um, you know, always listening to whatever the latest stuff was. And we just felt like a lot of the stuff coming out of Jamaica was strictly digital. And you know, more dance hall oriented. And now we we like we all like dance hall but we didn't think that should be the only option coming out of Jamaica. And all the U.S. reggae we were hearing were just like white guys with dreadlocks singing Bob Marley songs or like bad knockoffs. <laughs> of Bob songs. So we're like, wow, is that what's coming out in 1995 in in the world of reggae? You know, is that the best we could do? So we're like, well, why don't we just make try to make some records that sound like the way we like them and we started a record label to do that.
0: <laughs> That's pretty bold. That would be like being in a high school biology class, and then telling your friends, let's all be brain surgeons. I mean, it, it's like it's a pretty big leap to go from being just a fan to being, all right, we're going to be record executives now.
1: Yeah, well, I don't think we were thinking our, of ourselves as record executives. And even though now, you know, we <laughs> are, but I don't think of myself that way, you know, um, we were just four guys who really loved the music. And thought we could maybe do something with it to help everybody, you know? And me being a writer and a musician and a producer, it was a great chance for me. You know, I like I love a lot of different kinds of music, but I love reggae and I thought, you know, this would be a good chance for me to to uh, just lay down a lot of reggae and, and see what happens. So
0: over the years you guys have become pretty successful. I think you've held over a dozen or more records in the Billboard reggae charts. You've worked with some real big names in, in the in the genre and a lot of up and coming artists as well. Tell me a little bit about about that. I mean, obviously, you know, with guys who have been playing this music for a long period of time and then with kids who are really just discovering it and embracing it on their own, tell me about the about the difference between the two. Is it just purely about the music or is it is it something deeper and more soulful?
1: Well, I mean it's really about like you know there's the the older guys they've just been in it a lot longer and have seen a lot more, and especially the ones that came up, say in Jamaica. Or or New York, you know, over when reggae was coming to prominence, or or London. Whereas the the younger guys don't have that perspective, you know, they just don't yeah. have the the years of knowledge.
0: One of the things that's that's true of any genre of music, and not to classify everything, but since we're talking about reggae, it is it is a specific genre. What tends to happen over time is they, any genre tends to to fractionalize into a series of of subgenres. You mentioned dancehall; it's a perfectly good. Example, reggae has had dancehall and ska and you know, rocksteady and and then there's dub. And I think for Americans, while they may not be I- able to identify what dub is, it is a very creative offshoot of reggae, maybe one of the more creative ones. Tell me about how you would describe someone who may not be able to necessarily differentiate between dub and reggae or is there really a, a distinction between the two?
1: Well, yes, I, I believe that there is, but as you were saying with all these subgenres, you know, dub is a subgenre of reggae. You know, there are people who make quote unquote dub music now that don't have any reggae elements to it. Right. And they might say, oh, dub doesn't have to be reggae, which is true, I guess, except that I think everyone needs to recognize that dub comes from reggae. And that's, you know, I mean, unless the guys in Jamaica were copying some other. Form of music, but I really don't think so. I think the whole idea of doing it was was born partially out of amazing creativity. I'd say there's three components, creativity, technology, you know, the, the effects they use and the boards that they were using, which without the creativity doesn't mean much. And then also the economics of it all. I think a lot of these producers wanted to be able to create Quick alternate versions that that would work on their own, and they're that's increasing their recorded output of their label without having to pay a whole other set of musicians or pay another
0: artist. There's also an interesting history out of the U.K. when it comes to dub too, because when punk started to come out in in '76 and '77, there simply weren't enough songs to go around for radio stations to play, and so what basically happened is you had disc jockeys, guys like you know Don Letts, for example who would play reggae songs, but then to expand their playlist would basically create dub versions of songs to really just fill up the space. And those versions became every bit as popular and every bit as much of the culture back then as any punk song by The Clash of the, the Sex Pistols. Every bit as important.
1: Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. And I think it goes to show that reggae, dub, all, all genres of music can function as a way to break down barriers you know, and bring people together. Um, it just doesn't always happen. But I think that's part of the the beauty of the history of music, you know, especially just for example, the United States, you know, a lot of clubs and venues were completely segregated in the 50s, even into the 60s, and until popular tastes of all these uh, white American kids listening to R&B or what would become rock and roll, You know and then wanting to go to these same shows that the african-american kids would go to and then at one one point they're like we're not going to be segregated anymore they actually just desegregated themselves in the club there's nothing the police could do and then it just became more of the norm you know so like music so directly affected how people interact in just in the history of this this country that we're in right now, so I can't remember exactly where I was going with it. But I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just the power of music. That's what yeah. it
0: is. It's interesting though, because you've also, I mean, not, you've worked with more than just reggae artists. There are there are other, you know, maybe more mainstream artists that have that have wanted their music remixed. You know, Kelly Clarkson, uh, you know, Jason Mraz, even Yoko Ono, for that matter, has had you know your label remix their music. Tell me about, uh, about that. And how involved do, do those artists get in that process?
1: Uh, generally not very involved. <laughs> yeah, right. no, no, I mean, they might give, uh, a clue as to what they're hoping for. And then after you do it, they might have some feedback often, which is, you know, not, it's not unexpected. And it's, it's usually pretty sensical. It's not generally artists coming up with frivolous reasons to make you do a revision, you know? Yeah. And then, and that's probably the only time I'm hearing from the artists or their representatives, except, um, no, sometimes they do actually, you know, write to me to thank, thank me, which is nice.
0: For the last 20 years or so, Easy Star Records have been producing your own albums and uh, reinterpreting classic records, dub versions of Dark Side of the Moon. In fact, I think there are two versions of it, uh, Dub Side of the Moon and Dubber Side of the Moon. You know, Radiohead, Sgt. Pepper, Michael Jackson's Thriller. How did the the Easy Star All-Star project start? Well,
1: the Easy Star All-Stars actually predate that whole series. Uh, When I started uh, recording my original compositions in the nascent days of of Easy Star Records, uh, I would use, you know, a different group of musicians each session based on maybe the artist or maybe the artist would sometimes Want to bring his or her own musicians, you know. So the house band was lots of different people were passing through it, and we thought, what well, we should call this band something, you know. Even even in the beginnings of the company, we understood the value of branding. So we thought, let's put Easy Star in the name, and then it, well, now what do we do with it? Well, it's an all star cast of all the best reggae musicians in New York, who are on each all these different sessions, you know. So we call it Easy Star All Stars. Which just turned out to be confusing for some people and we get called the easy all-stars the easy dub all-stars you know um but it's Star all-stars no matter no matter what so that was like you know i guess our first recordings were in 1997 and then a few years later my partner lem oppenheimer was a big fan of pink floyd's dark side of the moon and he was listening to that one day and he just had this idea wow, I wonder if it could work as reggae and dub. So we brought <laughs> the, idea to the rest of us. I honestly was skeptical at first. I just wasn't, I mean, I knew the Pink Floyd album. You know, I knew the big songs, but I never was someone who would be like, oh, let me just sit and listen to that album, you know? <laughs> um, which, you know, everyone has their own favorites or sure. albums that they care about, even if everyone else seems to care about them. But... I went and i quickly wrote uh arrangements for a couple of the songs just in my home studio and uh, made demos and then listened to them with with my partners and we're like wow you know what this actually could work and we realized all the reasons that it could work and we just went for it it took us a few years but we finally you know put together the whole album and (laughs) that really changed our fortunes and maybe the the course of reggae in the United States on some
0: level. You also chose the Radiohead OK computer because that's it, it there are real similarities between that and Dark Side of the Moon. But when you hear it and and done the way you guys have done it, it makes sense to the point where you almost have to believe that if the songs are good enough, no matter who it is, it can be reinterpreted in a dub style. It could be turned into it could be reggae-fied. If, if that's even a, if that's even a word. But you know, in every effort that you've done when I've heard it, it's like, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. And the same thing with with Ziggy startup. I thought when I was listening to it, I'm going, oh my god, this sounds like this could have been made this way.
1: Wow, thank you. That's yeah, exactly what I was going for. As
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I, I I mean it. I mean, to me, you know, when I listen to it, it's just it's just a fun way of reinterpreting it. I mean, I have to ask. It's been it's been 11 years since you did Michael Jackson's Thriller, and then now David Bowie. It's been you know a good block of time in be. In between obviously there's a a pandemic in the middle of it but you know what took so long between one to the next
1: well i think it really all comes down to uh economics you know it's not that we didn't want to do another album for so long it's just that we needed to make sure that it was something that we thought people would want and then for me personally i don't make a whole lot of money from my record label so i i produce other stuff for other people you know which is great And it actually helps Easy Star when my name gets out there. All those remixes are just me, but I call them me with Easy Star All Stars to pay attention to the band. You know, I was doing other things because I had to, and then I was trying to slowly develop the idea. And then once we decided on Ziggy, then I had to start writing the arrangements, and that took a long time because I never want to rush any of these albums because I wanted to be as, as good as I can make it. You know, and then the yes, and then the recording process took a long time, partially because of COVID. We were ready to record probably right before COVID, and then we decided, you know, we didn't know what to do about putting people in a room together. And my whole style is predicated upon having like, you know, at least like four or five musicians playing live in the studio before any overdubs. So that presented its its own issues. But I hope people think it's worth the wait.
0: Well, I think they will, and I think when they hear who participated in this record. I mean, when I when I when I was reading it for the first time, I'm like, oh yeah, no, I I absolutely have to talk to this guy because to have gotten this lineup of people on any record is remarkable. Everyone from Maxi Priest and Steel Pulse and Fishbone and Alex Lifeson from Rush and <laughs> Macy Gray and you know Vernon Reid from from Living Color. I mean, it's, it's it's an amazing amount of talent involved in this project. In fact, if, if correct me if I'm wrong, this may be the biggest bunch of outside talent you've had in any of these records
1: yeah I, I would say so in terms of the number of of great artists that are kind of from outside our our standard world sure
0: <laughs> i i recently interviewed both separately angela moore and, and uh and dirty walter from fishbone uh and that's that's a bad i, I have always loved from the very beginning angela in my mind's like one of the greatest front men of all time and to hear them do the song that they did, I thought like, "Wow, it's 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 so freaking great to hear them do it." But they've done other covers before too, so it didn't seem to be all that out of the blue for them to uh, to be participating like this. I thought that was a, a real good call.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, Fishbone has been one of my favorite bands since their very beginning. I, I think I saw them at CBGB's, a uh, very famous club in New York City, <laughs> in like 1985 or 86. Like yeah, with color. You know, and now I'm working with Vernon Reed and Fishbone on this album. It's, it's a, kind of amazing for me as a fan, you know. Yeah, I, I think the I, I think the reason the Fishbone version, as you know, you were saying, oh, yeah, they've done a lot of covers. But to me, this was kind of special because, you know, I not that I was a, just because I was a fan for so long, but because they were really fans. Yeah. You know, like, Chris, uh, one of the two singers, Chris Dowd, he was a huge Bowie fan. And then he turned Angelo on to David Bowie. And now Angelo is this big David Bowie fan who even tours doing David Bowie
0: stuff. I was going to say that. He was a part of a, a a Bowie tour that had, like, Adrian Ballew. And I think Jerry Harrison was involved in it. It was a really a really cool thing. And to see Angelo a part of that, like, I've never seen a guy whip up a crowd more than, than Angelo more. Like, like you, I've seen them a, a, a whole bunch of times. And still to this day, maybe the best live band I've ever seen anywhere ever. Just yeah. incredible.
1: Well now they have mostly their original lineup back, which is
0: which is pretty Which amazing. is really cool. But you know, the other versions that I thought were phenomenal. Moon Age Daydream, I thought was done was done so well with uh, Naomi Cowan. Just just really, really well interpreted song.
1: Yeah, thank you. That's that's probably my favorite song from the original album from many, many years ago when I first discovered it. And I wanted to do something different with this one. Like, like the original one is kind of based on its, on its guitar power chords, you know, um, and the, for the very beginning of the song. And it's just very aggressive and in your face and I wanted to do something that was more... Could still be, you know, have, have an attitude, but I want to be more laid back and less in your face and more just steady and hypnotic. I'm like, to take something angular, like David Bowie's original version, and instead make it into something more smooth. I guess that's what I was yeah. I was
0: thinking. The album opens up with uh, with five years, the original version, and this one does too, and you come out swinging with, uh, with steel pulse. I mean, God, I mean, you talk about... You know just a legendary reggae band steel pulse couldn't have been a better a better choice for this first song of the record
1: wow thanks um yeah i've also been a huge steel pulse fan for about as long as i've been a, a fishbone fan and i i still remember seeing steel pulse live you know in the 80s and just they were amazing then they're still amazing and david has david hines their lead singer has such a distinctive voice yeah and a lot of the sound of Steel Pulse, really, they're classic vocals, though. Like, the background vocals are really, now having worked with them, it's really all Selwyn. Selwyn Brown, their original keyboardist and, and vocalist. Um, he does an amazing job, between him and David, of, of just making a, the, the classic Steel Pulse sound on everything they do. So, yeah, I, I, I wanted an iconic voice like David's for the, because Bowie is such an icon and uh yeah he really we it took a little while for him to to get it because the original is in three four time and i put it into four four time, so the phrasing Mm -hmm. of them very different but you know we worked on it and and in the end he came with a really compelling performance that for a reggae artist i say very much pays tribute to david bowie
0: i think the other casting in this is not curious at all but the it's you know she has such a unique voice on her own is rock and roll suicide you had macy gray singing that and uh you know, that's you know to me that's like one of the you know the great crescendos of 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 bowie's career to, to end the record and her voice is just so unique it, it sounded fantastic
1: yeah that one often when i write the arrangements i'm not quite sure who which artist i think would sound best on it but for, from early on in the process i thought you know what macy gray would sound really cool on this <laughs> So something about her, look, it's it's an emotional song that goes from a very mellow place to a very excited place by the end. So I needed a singer who could really handle that. Um, and I also wanted, uh, I wanted the vocalist to be able to put his or her stamp on it and make it their own in a way, you know, have some fun with the melody and the phrasing.
0: How hard was it to get all these people involved? I mean, you know, you're, you're talking about people who, you know, I mean, they're really all over the place, all over the country, all over the world. How hard was it to get them to be involved, and were they did they understand what you were trying to do with this right away?
1: Okay, well, I can't remember exactly how long it took, but it took a long time. I think we were working on it for, I don't know, maybe almost a year. You yeah. know, like, art, like some artists, like Macy Gray, first said she wanted to do it, and it was like October or November of of 2021. And I didn't get her in the studio until July of 2022, you know? (laughs) So so the whole process could take a really long time. Or we've had vocalists who said they would participate. Yeah, yeah, I'm really interested. I really want to do it. I really want to do it. And it goes on for weeks. And then they're like, yeah, I don't don't really get it. I don't want to do it, you know? And so that leads to your other question. Most of these artists, no, I wouldn't say most of them, but all the Jamaican artists didn't really know the song or, original song right um certainly fishbone did and um kirsty rock knew all the young dudes um which we did as a bonus track yeah in fact maxi priest told me something interesting he told me that in the 70s in growing up in london that he and his friends who were all of caribbean descent they kind of decided you know what white people here have shat on us for so long we're not gonna get into (laughs) white culture he said he knew who david Bowie was but he had never heard any of the music really i mean at that point like when he was in the 70s you know um but now of course he knows david bowie stuff although he didn't i don't think he knew starman before i asked him to do it and he just seemed to have a lot of respect for for david bowie and interestingly to me at least uh freddie mcgregor who's not on the album Um, but who I'm friendly with. He told me when I was telling him about the project, he said immediately like, oh yeah, I love David Bowie. And I was a little surprised, but then he's like, yeah, I don't really know so much of his music, but he stood up for having black artists on MTV when no one else would. Obviously, if Freddie McGregor knows about that, then I think a lot of other people in Jamaica might, you know, or other artists, you know, but I think it's pretty cool that Bowie was able to at least start the conversation. You know, obviously everything is just dictated by profit. And once they're like, Hey, if we don't put Michael Jackson on MTV, we're right. screwed. You know, that's when things change.
0: You're right about that. And one of the other things that, that Bowie did for a number of years, he had a, a remarkably brilliantly talented band that was racially integrated, you know, George Murray and Carlos Alomar and Dennis Davis. I mean, you know, these guys were world-class musicians and they played with David for like four or five albums. And so, he was very, very attuned to the racial differences and some of the problems that they they faced with MTV embracing you know black music. David Bowie really was. I mean, like like you say, very important in that regard. So one of the the other uh, things I want to ask you about is when you're doing an album like this and you're basically I mean, you're using the the music. Is there are there any licensing issues with you doing these? Do you have to get permission to? To reimagine these songs? How how is that how does that work out?
1: Well, it's it's pretty simple. Um, first of all, no one to my knowledge has determined whether we have to request a license or not for the publishing, for the, the intellectual property that's the song. And it's because the there's something called a compulsory mechanical license. I'm sorry if this is too technical, but so any anyone who's covering a song could get this license that as long as they pay the royalties, the proper royalties to the publisher then they have permission to do the song. You don't have to like have written requests to the actual writers, Mm -hmm. but there's a gray area. Says you can do that, but only if it doesn't make a fundamental change to the composition. But then no one has ever defined what a fundamental.
0: (laughs) I was gonna say, how do you decipher that?
1: Right, so to protect ourselves, we thought, okay, let's do everything above board. Let's contact the publishers and get an actual license, see what they're interested in, um, in terms of some, some publishers will let us add some lyrics or change a lyric here and there, some will not. Let's find out now and not after we've recorded everything. Right. You know, so we, we, we always do everything above board. We work with the publishers to get those rights. In order to, to just cover the music for, in, in the sense of uh, a master recording, we don't have to have any special rights from that, but we have to ask permission from the artist or their management or their estate uh, to use, say, their likeness in a certain way, or the likeness of an album. Like we couldn't have made our version of Dub Side of the Moon. We weren't allowed to use the prism and the pyramid idea at all. You know So they, they have the right to that, you know, for trademark laws. So um, we do ask for permission. We get the proper license. And that's maybe one of the reasons why we've been able to do this successfully.
0: Uh, obviously, you know, you're, you're focused on, on this record for the, for the moment. Do you have in, in your mind, like a, like a short list of albums that you would love to do, that you love to reinterpret?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I can't share them with people. Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> you know,
0: I know that, uh, you know, many years ago, uh, there was a band Dread Zeppelin that did uh, a reggae version of Led Zeppelin songs with an Elvis impersonator. It's like one of the, most bizarre concepts ever, but it it worked. They really did a great job of it. I can see, in in, in many ways, I can see how, like I said before, if the song is good, it can be interpreted that way. And, like, Led Zeppelin music would be one that I could see, all right, you know, that might be one that would work.
1: Well, look, I meant to address this when you brought up that concept the first time, that if a song is good, then it could be good as reggae like any song could work as reggae but the problem is you know most people who have done that haven't done uh, I think a great (laughs) job you know so (laughs) I I don't think it's obviously not as simple as as that um you know and also what Easy Star does is we don't we're not thinking so much just about songs we're thinking about entire albums and that I think has set us apart most labels don't attempt that to take an entire album and redo it in a different genre. So we kind of always stuck to that, and it's not just about like, oh, any old song could work. You have to find a whole album where every song yeah. could work. Um, so that's the real challenge.
0: Well, I, I got to tell you, I thought the Ziggy Startup was an absolute blast, and, and and I and I appreciate you taking some time. Like I said, it's like it's like David Bowie month over here. So uh pretty exciting time to be doing you know David Bowie you know interviews, and and uh, the timing on this is just uh, amazing. So thank you, I appreciate oh. it.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Absolutely. Best of luck with this record, Michael. I hope uh, things do real well for you and the label. Thank you. The name of the new record from the Easy Star All-Stars is Ziggy Stardub and the Spiders from Mars. It's so well done. It's awesome. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, like it, share it, review it, tell all your friends about it. Follow us all over social media. You can also email me at backs 102com I'd love to know what you think. Thanks to z Home Builders at z and And thank you for listening to Baxi's musical podcast.